Good morning as we gather. Let's prepare our hearts for worship by hearing the words of this song.
welcome to those of you worshiping here and online. We're so glad that you're joining us today. As we light the Christ candle, celebrating the end of Advent and the arrival of Christ and Christmas, let us remember how our Savior came once as a lowly baby, that the world through him might be saved, and how he will return one day in glory. And now hear the word of the Lord from John 1. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, nor a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. to stand and worship with us.
Good morning. I'd like to uh, invite Mary um, DeWitt, Pastor Mary DeWitt, up with us, and um, Dee and Christine are going to join us. This Sunday is, is, again, an adventurous and unique Sunday. This Sunday marks a transition for um, Pastor Mary DeWitt um, from her time here with us formally, um, serving us um, on staff, um, to retirement. Pastor Mary has served uh, here at Hardwick for 32 years. Um, over that 32, beginning of that 32 years, um, Hardwick met as a community across the hall and the sanctuary. And since that time, we've had both the development of fusion and watershed. Pastor Mary, um, I like to describe it this way, has served in every position available at Hardwick Ministries, either formally or informally. She's taken on that role. And she has always been faithful. Um, where she has learned, where she has needed to develop skills, she's developed those skills. Um, she's always excelled. And, and Mary um, has been, since my time here, the ultimate pitch hitter, um, willing to step in and help at any place at any time and to fill the gaps as needed. And so her retiring um, will, will be felt. And we will miss her greatly on staff, but we are glad that her and Tim are going to be staying with us um, and that she'll be continuing to serve here um, informally during that time. So on behalf of the council and the Hardwick community, we have a small gift for you, Mary. And in the words um, of Jesus from the parable and the talents, um, Mary, well done, good and faithful servant. Thank you very much. How many of you know Bob Hope? Quite a few. Oh yeah, there's some old people in here, right? Um, he would close every one of his shows with a song, or he'd say the words, thanks for the memories. Um, that came to my mind a couple of weeks ago as I was reflecting, and as I was sitting in the sanctuary a couple of weeks ago too as we were recording the services, um, I was just reflecting on all kinds of things. I was seeing kids run up there, children's programs and different things like that, but, and then afterwards somebody said, how do you really feel? And I said, you know, you don't cry because it's over, you give thanks because it happened, and it happened. And I have been blessed in amazing ways. Thank you for your encouragement, your support, the way you have challenged me. We have done a lot of life together, haven't we? Some of it's been tough, some of it's been filled with joy, but we have done some tremendous life together. And through it all, God has been faithful. We see God's love and his grace and his mercy in all of it. And so I am very, very grateful that I am ending well. This is healthy for me and my family. It is healthy for Hardawike to be ending well. So thank you from the bottom of my heart for the way that you have supported me, and I'm not going anywhere. I'll be hanging around. You're still going to see my face. I love you. You don't turn the switch off from loving this. You're my family. So God bless you all. Thank you. I would encourage um, each of you to take a few moments this week and to write a quick um, note to Mary and just to recount in some way that she has touched your life um, in her ministry here. Something for her to continue to reflect on and to read and to be encouraged by. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for this opportunity. We thank you for Mary's 32 years of service here. We thank you for the 
countless lives that she's touched with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we pray that as her and Tim transition into a different season of life now, we pray that you would bless them, that you would watch over them, and that your grace would go before them. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Good morning. This morning as I was praying, God had given me the scripture earlier um, for the prayer today, and it's Psalm 121. But earlier today when I was praying at home, I'm like, Lord, which way does this prayer have to go? What do your people, what do I need to pray for your people for? And the only words he gave me is, he knows. So if there's nothing else you go home with today, if there's nothing else you hear, know that God knows, period. No explanation needed. He knows. Let's pray. I lift my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither, neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your comings and your going, both now and forevermore. Lord, I thank you for these promises that you have written out. You know if I'm going to leave the house. You know which day is my last day on earth. Lord, you know when that next baby is going to be born. You know, and Lord, this just befuddles me. But thank you, Lord, that you know. Lord, I thank you for watching over all of us through this busy, chaotic season that's different. But Lord, you knew it was coming. It's our choice to follow you. Lord, you know when I have made bad mistakes. Lord, you know when I have sinned. But Lord, help me to recognize that and to confess it to you. Lord, I thank you for that gift of salvation, that when my heart is cleaned out, you drop in your love. I know I am loved. You don't hold those sins against me. You let me go about doing your work day by day. Lord, you know also the words that Bill is going to teach the words that he is going to put out of his mouth, Lord, I ask that he tune into you carefully so that he knows the words that you want your people to hear. Lord, give him the heart to give those words in love 
And not just Bill's love, Lord, because that's always conditional, but your love, Lord, so we can all feel your love on this day and stretch out and be willing to hand that love to someone else. So, Lord, watch over our comings and our goings, both now and forevermore. Amen. Well, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. And may the new year be different than the old year. It's been quite a time, hasn't it? Y'all doing all right? Everybody okay? Good morning. Good. What a holiday it's been. It's been different, hasn't it? I got a Christmas tree ornament for my wife, Mary Lynn, for Christmas present. And we're just going to put 2020 on there and remember it that way. But it's good that we gather here. This is kind of a Sunday between sermon series, and so I'm going to take this one time to kind of dig into some things that have been on my heart and mind. Uh, I'll begin by reading from the book of Galatians, and if you would press through this for me. I want to look at Galatians 1, 6 through 7. I noticed in my daily Bible reading towards the end of the year, I was reading the Paul's epistles, and I was taken by how often Paul had to distinguish the true gospel from the false gospel, that he was always trying to make one thing clear in contrast to the other. And then I realized from the very beginning he did that. So let's go back to his first letter, the book of Galatians. This is probably the first written document of the New Testament, Galatians is. And so this would have been one of the first issues that the people of God ever dealt with. Let us hear the word of God, Galatians 1, 6 through 7. Paul speaking. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we live in a challenging and distracting world, and yet in the midst of this, the Lord Jesus was born, and right in the midst of our mess, he gave his life and conquered death to give us more than we could ever ask or imagine. I pray this day we might not see simply the distractions of the world, but might see in a bigger way the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that you moved through the life of the Apostle Paul to inspire the words he wrote, and then across centuries you've preserved these texts. It's an amazing story. So that now we can, as it were, open the scroll, translate, study, and hear your good word for us. I pray you'd uh, lead your people, illumine to our hearts and minds the truth that you have for us. Fill us with good news in the fullness of Jesus, we pray. And all of God's people sit together. Amen. And amen. I'm calling this sermon Three Ill Winds. That word is a capital I with two lowercase ills. L's. Ill as in unhealthy or not good for you. As I said, I was struck by the amount of time that Paul and his ministry took to make clear what the gospel was and often contrasting or differentiating the gospel from that which was not gospel. This is his first letter, Galatians. 
And he's writing how quickly you have deserted grace and are turning to a different gospel that really is no gospel at all. Now, in that setting, the different gospel he's pointing to was the addition of something to Christ alone. It was Christ alone plus Jewish practices, the circumcision. He says that this matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks. This led to division in the church. One group was no longer eating or sharing relationship with the other. It involved real people in real circumstances. And it required of Paul to do some serious discerning analysis and to have some hard face-to-face conversations. In Galatians 2.34, Paul records that he challenged Peter. He spoke to him face-to-face. And he said, not you're not eating with folks. It's not like Paul said, oh, your behavior is bad. You broke the no racism law. It was something deeper. He said, you're not acting in line with the gospel. Oh, I see this behavior. We've had this discussion. Is Christ alone worth it? But there's something else driving these matters. You see, it's sprinkled all through Paul's letters. He's making the gospel of God's grace clear. He has to differentiate that from all those things that are counter, distinguishing the gospel from non-gospel, engaging specific ideas and people. I want to take this opportunity. We're between the two series, and I want to encourage you to cultivate your sense of discernment. I'm going to identify and name three perspectives that, like the wind, are powerful even though unseen. They move things along. They have impact on our lives. And so my hope is to use this illustration. You see the sailboat. I love to go down to Ottawa Beach. We'll watch those boats out on Lake Michigan. And this came to mind because it's a great picture of how the invisible wind can fill visible sail and it moves the boat forward. You may not see the wind, but you'll see the billowing of the sail, and you'll see that boat move. I want to tell you, friends, often we're concerned about where is the boat moving. Well, we see the sail filled, and that's why it's moving. The question for us ought to be, what of this invisible wind? Now, I can only skim these three different winds. I've put more resources on the Sermon Resources blog. You would have gotten an email today that links to this uh, service on our homepage. If you go all the way down to the bottom, there's a Sermon Resources, and you'll find blog posts by various folks, books, references, some documentaries. There's a lot of information, but I'm just going to hit some views of these winds, and we'll go on from there. I'm also hoping that some of you might say, you know, I want to learn more. This began for me as thinking about a class of three or four weeks, and maybe if you're interested, we could do that, get together by Zoom, read some of these other things, cultivate discernment. Right now, I simply want to name these three ill winds so you have a sense of where we're going. The first one is this, prosperity theology. It's a wind in our culture that blows the boat in particular directions. 
Another one, and this may be new to you here in Fusion, moralistic therapeutic deism. I'll give you, uh, break that down for you, but fascinating story of this wind and how to identify it. And then the, the one that seems to be gale force in our culture right now that is really, I'm having to learn more about, is expressive individualism. Don't be overwhelmed. I'm not giving you a test. When I was uh, teaching, uh, in Montreat College, my students would ask all the time, is that going to be on the test? My answer was always, well, since you asked, I think it will. That was the only way I could push back on that. No test, but I want to give you these three things. Prosperity theology, moralistic therapeutic deism, expressive individualism. Let's dive into them a bit. Prosperity theology, that's a set of ideas and perspectives that have begun to permeate our culture for decades now. It's a kind of thought around a variety of fairly high-profile personalities. We know and have heard the names, Joel Osteen, Paula White, Kenneth Copeland, Benny Hinn. From a distance, we can see they're often very independent in their affiliation, uh, tend to be extravagant in presentation, strong media presence. You'll find them on the TV. Historically speaking, that's part of my training, this perspective has deep roots in the United States uniquely back to about the 50s, but it's developed and now has a worldwide impact. I talk with missionaries who say, there are tapes floating around our country with this perspective and changing, impacting the way we do ministry. Um, the challenge of prosperity theology is this, that it takes faith and makes it a tool to get what you want. Have you ever heard this perspective? If you believe enough, you can have that healing. If you don't have that healing, it's because you lack faith. Have you ever run into that? Boy, I have. Try going to a hospital with somebody who's really struggling in a minute, and they've been told that the reason they're not walking out of the hospital is because they lack faith. It's so unchristlike. I want to contrast this perspective with the idea of trusting acceptance of God's grace. I've learned some things in hard times. Have you? I've faced challenges that I couldn't overcome, but that God shaped my life in, and I'm different. You see, the gospel ought to cause us to reflect and to ask, is God at work in these circumstances doing something different than I asked for? You see that all through the Bible. It can be your experience. It has been mine. Perhaps it's not about me and my exercise of faith, but about God and his kingdom and his bearing fruit in the Holy Spirit through me. And so God is not someone I command by my faith. He's one I surrender to, and he shapes my life. Is he generous? Absolutely. Boy, have I got stories. Has he got healing power? I've seen him do that. But does he move at my beck and call? The answer to that is no, he is Lord. And yet we get swept away in this mechanistic approach, faith that's a tool. He'll challenge us. 
Well, the second one is called moralistic therapeutic deism. Three big words, but I'll unpack them. For now, I want to kind of lodge them in your mind. I'm going to say them, and then you echo them back to me, okay? I'm going to say moralistic, moralistic, therapeutic, therapeutic deism. Deism. Thanks. Let me unpack this. Moralistic means choose this behavior and get the result you want. You've heard those stories. The moral of the story is quit complaining about Auntie M in Kansas or you might get bonked on the head. There's no place like home. You know moralisms in this moralistic perspective. Behave this way to get what you want. Therapeutic means that it's really about am I feeling good about myself? Are my issues resolved? I'm fearing, feeling at peace. All is well with my world. Deism is the idea that there is a God, but he's distant. He may have created, yeah, but don't expect him to be involved. The classic illustration is the watchmaker. Have you ever heard of that in your college classes or such? There was a watchmaker who made a watch, but then he stepped back and it runs on its own as if God has pulled back and has left us to our own designs. Now, this term didn't just fall out of thin air. It wasn't left to us by a watchmaker. It's the summation of a book called Soul Searching, The Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers by Christian Smith and Melinda Denton. Here's what they did. They were professors at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, and they conducted an extensive study, about 3,000 carefully uh, selected representative high school students, and they gave them extensive interviews to try to ask not simply what they did, but what their motivations were. What causes you to act the way you do? What are the things deep inside you that generate the actions that we see? And what came out of that was this book. They try to describe what they consider to be the common beliefs among American youth. The book is the result of this research project for the National Study of Youth and Religion. Now, interesting, the teens in this study are now into their 30s, many of them raising children. This was what characterized their faith as high school students. Now they carry it with them all through our country. Christian Smith identified five key parts of this faith, five principles that kind of stand at the center. Let me just list them, and I'll uh, have a note on the screen, but I'll read out what he uh, expressed these as. First, a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. Okay, so a God exists. Second, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other. Yeah, it's taught in the Bible and by most world religions. So there's a God who exists, and he wants people to be good. Third, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Central goal? I like being happy as much as the next person, but ask yourself, discern here. Central goal? Four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. So I'm going to live my life. He expects me to live my life. And if I run into trouble, I'll check in. Number five, good people go to heaven when they die. Well, 
There's lots of interesting ramifications to consider here. This is why I'd love to have a Zoom class or sit down with you, do some more reading, considering here. There's a lot of interesting ramifications. But I want to give one concrete example from just this week where I saw this wind blowing hard in our culture. I was driving around Holland with the radio on in my car, and there was a radio segment that came up about prayer. They started saying, COVID has changed how we all worship. We won't be able to go to our Christmas candlelight service. I can relate to this, so they've got me. But people are seeking spiritual support and to express their spirituality in new ways. Prayer has become very important. So they interview a chaplain, first responders, a variety of people across ages, ethnicities, all sorts of things. But again and again, the story was similar. Prayer is a practice that helps me find peace and tranquility. It helps me gain a mindfulness that gives me a calm and makes me better able to respond and make a difference in the world. I'm happier because of my prayer. Only one person mentioned that they made prayers to who for me is God is the way they put it. Isn't that interesting? Everyone else could speak of the practice of prayer without any reference to divinity. Every reference to prayer was built around the idea of personal peace and happiness. It had a therapeutic perspective. I want to suggest to you, when prayer is a relationship with a God who lives, who speaks, who is holy, who is loving, who is moving history according to his purposes, it's a little bigger than just therapy. Do I find peace when I pray to the Lord? By his grace, I do. He is Jehovah Shalom. But I'm not really what you'd call peaceful when his Holy Spirit convicts me of sin and draws me to confession. Healthy prayer, I often disciple people with the four letters, A-C-T-S, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. Healthy prayer is going to be a relationship with a real spiritual person, not just a personal therapy moment. There may be times of weeping and sadness. There may be moments of awe-filled adoration, but it's more than therapy. Do you see how this works? It's sort of like when politicians say, our prayers are with this person or family in a particular crisis. <laughs> you want to know what's going on in my crazy mind? I'm asking, oh, really? Where is it on your schedule that you published for the day? Where did you pray if you prayed? What spot were you in? Friends, we think of prayer as this therapeutic behavior. The Bible offers us more. And we need to recognize that's a wind that will blow us off course. That's why I want to show this illustration again. MTD, moralistic therapeutic deism, is an invisible wind. Even now it may seem odd to point out for you, but this is an invisible wind. It fills the sail. There's prayer. But it moves the boat in a very, very different direction. Finally, I want to talk about one that I see myself stumbling across more and more, expressive individualism. And I'll give you a definition here. I'll leave it up so you can see it. 
The definition is this, that I become a person of worth as I discover my own deepest desires and feelings and express them. Once I determine who I am, that's where it begins, then I can enter into relationships, but only with those who accept me on my own terms. Expressive individualism. It's about the individual. It's about the individual discovering who they are and expressing it, no holds barred. Now, that definition is taken from a book written by Tim and Kathy Keller this year. It's called On Marriage. They talk about how in this decisive moment of marriage, your life can be shaped for the better. But they see more and more people coming to marriage driven by the wind of expressive individualism. That's why it was so fascinating. Think about entering into marriage. If the point of life was to discover your deepest desires and express them, and you could only be in relationship with someone who affirmed those and accepted you on your own terms, that's a whole different perspective than the wind of the gospel. Do you see how you could talk about the issue of marriage? But if the wind blowing is like that, you're going to go in one direction. If you've really let your sail catch the wind of the gospel of God's grace, it'll be totally different. I meditate from time to time through the book of Ephesians. In chapter 5, verse 25, it begins, since I'm a husband, I look at my part, what it means for a husband to live in marriage. Paul writes, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That means that Jesus is filling my sail with his grace that I might lay down my life so that my wife would flourish. It's not about me discovering who I am and expressing myself. It's about me dying, laying down my life that she might become all God has called her to be. Jesus loved the church by dying for her. His grace is calling me to lay down my life for another person and for her benefit. Now, here's the paradox of the gospel. I will find myself and my joy as I lay down my life for her. Six times, it's the most repeated statement of Jesus in the four Gospels. He says this, whoever tries to keep their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life will preserve it. Friends, I want to tell you, that's a different wind to fill the sail than expressive individualism. The world says, be true to yourself. The more I realize my brokenness and sin, the less I want to be true to that sickness. You do you. Express yourself, even if it means breaking the rules. Friends, here's a hint. Most Disney productions these days are virtual animated catechisms training the heart in expressive individualism. At the bottom of the sermon resources, the very last thing is a blog that I found very helpful, The Road to Sexual Revolution, Carl Truman and the Modern Self. It's a book review of a book I want to get to by a Grove City professor where he looks at expressive individualism and begins to unpack how many of our discussions are about one thing, but what's driving them is this unseen force.
So with these three topics, I want to encourage you to cultivate discernment, to, to be like Paul who will understand what's gospel and what is turning from the gospel. But I want to make three closing points about why it's important to cultivate discernment. The first is this, not in order to win arguments. This has been a part of my life that I've had to repent of and die to. The yearning to win arguments and to prove myself better is sin that I've had to repent of. It hurts things. This is no reason to understand these three things. But we ought to cultivate discernment in order to guard our own hearts. Paul writes in Galatians 2.2, I don't want to run my own race in vain. If we're going to navigate confusing times, we need to have a sense that there are different winds out there. That it's more than just talking the issue, it's what's driving the issue. It's hard to know and analyze every error. But God would call his people to have a laser-like focus on the true North Star, the gospel of God's grace. Know that, and everything that doesn't run, ring true to that, beware. See, a third thing that's really key for cultivating discernment is that we might hear clearly the hearts of others. Only then, when we sense not simply what are their questions, but what winds are driving those questions, only then can we better communicate the gospel of God's grace. Quick examples. For that radio program, I really do want to understand the tension and desire for peace that so many of us feel. I, I'm not seeing my mother on the East Coast or my kids and their spouses on the West Coast. It's killing me. It's a disrupted time. But that desire for tension and peace can't be met by my own resources. There are, is more than just applying your own resources. I would love to say to all the people in that radio program, imagine if prayer were connecting to a real person, a spiritual person, but a real one, who is both caring and able to carry my burdens. That, my friends, is peace. Marriage and what it means to live that out in the gospel is so different than when conceived by expressive individualism. I'd want to share and say, friends, true, your true identity is a gift that God gives you. It's something you receive, not something you achieve by your own effort and discernment. Receive the adoption as a deeply loved, fully adopted child of the great creator king. Friends, we need to know what sort of wind is filling the sail of the discussion that we are having with people. And we need to fill the sail of our life with the wind of the Holy Spirit to trim it, to, to pull in and to catch it at its fullest. We need to cultivate discernment that we might live with humility and trust and faithfulness, serving others, glorifying Jesus. Again, I'm going to close, but I want to encourage you. I hope this is just the beginning. If you're interested in more, um, I'm going to be in and out of the office this week, but email me, bill at harderwhite.com. I work at Harder White. My name is Bill. Clever email address, isn't it? Bill at harderwhite.com. Let's find a way to go more, to talk, maybe form a discussion group, learn how to pray together. Let's find a way. But I encourage you, cultivate discernment that you might serve in relationship to the glory of the living God. Shall we pray? Father, I thank you that you have rescued us. Broken sinners, Jesus entered into our mess.
carried the burden of our sin to the cross where the price was paid and we are set free. We're set free not to do what we want, but to live for you. I thank you for the identity that you've given each of us as deeply loved, fully adopted children of the great creator king. Thank you that we can receive more by your grace than we could ever earn in our own ability. And so in this powerful truth and moment, speak adoption to our hearts. May our prayer be more than simply a momentary therapy, but a connection with the living God. We pray in his mighty name. Amen. And amen. amen. I invite you to stand and worship.
And now go with these words. As the Apostle Paul says in Philippians, the Lord is near. We are witnesses of the dawning of that great light come into the world. Emmanuel, God with us. Now may we depart from this gathering with our faces set on the sun so that our lives may serve as a reflection of God's light in the midst of our darkness, that our very lives may announce the coming of the Messiah. Go in peace. <laughs>